0: All right, so we're going to be starting in Hebrews 5 and verse 12, and then we're going to go to the end of chapter 6. For when for that time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need, for one, teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but one strong meat. "...belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. For the doctrine of the baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment... And this will we do, if God permit, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they, have, they, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame, for the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burdened. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is unri- is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have shewed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do shew the name diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promises to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Saying surely, I will bless thee and multiply... And multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For verily swear by the by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to shew unto the heirs of promise that immutably of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which... It was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope which set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which endureth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. may be seated. Good
1: morning. You know, it seems like I have to issue two of these each week. Next week, you're going to do it on the first try. I'm convinced of it. Um, Let's try it one more time. Good morning. Excellent. Good. See, you just feel better when it's done rightly. There's something about a a hearty good morning uh, that is good for every single one of us. And uh, I hope you are... Glad to be in the Lord's house. Psalmist says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord, right? And so I'm hoping this morning that's the case for you, that when you woke up this morning or when your parents woke you up this morning, that you were glad that you were going to be going into the Lord's house today, okay? We've got some work to do this morning. Like every Sunday when we open God's word, there's work to do. This Sunday there's also work to be done. And I believe as we open these uh, Bibles that uh, we've been so graciously given, uh, what we're going to see today are some things that uh, we need to look very seriously at. And we need to take heed to these words in particular in Hebrews chapter 6. There's a lot here Um, We've got a fairly short amount of time to cover what all is here, and uh, I'm going to pray for our our time in the Word and pray that the Lord would just give me the words that He wants me to speak this morning relative to this passage of Scripture. And then, uh, Lord willing, at the end of it all, uh, perhaps it will uh, uncover, unveil further questions, further thought, further communications amongst us all as we... ...look at this text and this passage of Scripture. So, with that in mind, let's let's pray and then we will jump in. Father, we are grateful and we thank you that you are good and that you do good. We've come uh, upon what for many is a uh, hotly debated, challenging passage of Scripture. And I'm asking this morning, Father, for your grace to make known your truth from this text... I pray that you would show me what you desire uh, to teach. pray that you would help me by your good spirit to present this truth in a way that people here understand. Father, you sent your son uh, to die that we might live through him. He died that we might have everlasting life. And yet, Father, as we look all around us, we see and recognize that his death and burial and resurrection... All of that being said and all of that evident in your word. There's people who still continue living however they want. Not led by the spirit, but walking in the flesh. I pray, Father, that you would train us all here to understand that there's a battle going on. A battle pertaining to souls. God desires that we walk with him and trust him. ...all the way to the end. That's the testimony of the Scriptures. Is It's your desire, God, that we do that. And we also know from the Scripture that the evil one... ...is like that lion, crouching. Ready to devour. Men and women. Young and old. Those in particular who have professed to be... ...Christians, believers... Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the significance of growing in the Lord, growing in His Word, growing in your ways, walking in the Spirit, walking regularly among your people. Help us to see that in Christ truly is the most secure place for us to be. Father, as we hear this morning from Hebrews 6... uh, a warning blast that sounded. I pray that it would land with clarity, with urgency, and with understanding. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see what you're doing in us, what you're doing around us, what you're doing among us. Father, I pray this morning that we would recognize the danger of walking the fence when it comes to living out this faith, we see here in the scripture that we're called to. You've called us to get off the fence. We see in the scripture that it's two hands to the plow, not looking back, kind of living that's called for. And by your good grace, if there are any fence straddlers here today are listening to this message, pray that your word... ...would have its intended effect on the hearts of the listener. For those who are here today who are walking in the faith... ...I pray that this word would motivate them even more... ...to keep on growing in their relationship with Jesus. And I pray that it would solidify their faith... ...that it would strengthen them... ...as they take heed to the warning. Father, as we saw right at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1... ...you are a God who has spoken... And you are a God who is still speaking yet today through your Son. My prayer today is that we all would hear what the Son has to say. And that when your word speaks, we would hear and do. We would practice walking in obedience to your commandments. And I pray we would never tire or grow weary of walking in obedience to the Lord. So Father, we pray that you would strengthen our frames to go the distance with you. All the way to the end, persevering in the faith. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen. One of the great benefits of expository preaching, expository preaching, simply put, there's a lot of subdefinitions we could give to it, but for a matter of just introductory. Most of you consider probably expository preaching just essentially walking through a book of the Bible verse by verse. That's probably how many of you would understand and come to think of expository preaching. There's a lot of other facets to it. But in summary, it's one of the benefits of expository preaching is that you know oftentimes from week to week where you're going to be preaching. You preach verses 1 through 8. On a given week, you know that starting next week, you're going to be preaching, Lord willing. Nine through whatever. And then the next week, you know you're going to move into the next chapter. And you're going to move... And there's a progression. It's one of the benefits of expository preaching. You know, another benefit of expository preaching is that you learn the context of the letter that's being written. You spend time in a book. You start to learn and understand what the author, as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, is writing about. You start to get a feel for the, the audience to whom he's writing. You pick up the heart of this author and you pick up on themes and keywords, and you start to recognize over time perhaps where he's going even before he spells it out completely. Many benefits of expository preaching. But you know there are also challenges in expository preaching. One of the great challenges in expository preaching is arriving at a passage that has been handled in various ways by various preachers over time. You're moving along in a book and all of a sudden you bump up against a difficult passage. And what you discover in the course of your digging and your study is that biblical scholars, godly men of faith over centuries have disagreed with one another in terms of how this difficult passage should be interpreted and understood. You know, I was reminded of this and I was, I was thinking about how years ago in ministry, I, I had scoped out a uh, preaching text over the uh, several months, I think it was a summer as I recall, going through the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you know Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Right? I had planned to preach through the Sermon on the Mount. And really, as we think about it, Sermon on the Mount, somewhat of a safe text. Right? What I I failed to discover was that in back-to-back weeks, I would be preaching what Jesus had to say about adultery and divorce. Adultery on one week Show up next week and I'll share about divorce. I remember thinking how I could easily remedy these difficult passages. I share with you, not because I'm proud of it, but because it was actually a thought of mine as I recalled that time. I I could just bypass it and pick it up on the other end. Could have done that. You know, looking back, it wasn't so much that Jesus' words were difficult to understand in those verses on adultery and divorce. But I knew it would be a difficult subject. In light of several in the church body at the time who had gone through divorce in particular. There were many in the church who had gone through divorce. I was thinking difficult in terms of a potentially explosive subject to address. But you know, looking back on that, I'm grateful to the Lord that He had me go through the difficult passages. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit leading me to preach the whole counsel of His Word and not take a detour when it came to a difficult passage of Scripture. By now, perhaps you have come to understand that Hebrews has some difficult passages of its own. Today we move into Hebrews chapter 6 and are confronted with what many Bible teachers would describe as a significantly difficult passage of Scripture to understand, let alone preach. I would imagine that Hebrews 6 is not a sermon text of choice for many preachers today if given the opportunity to select a text, I don't believe Hebrews 6, the first eight verses, is going to be a choice near the top of the list for many preachers today. Because it is difficult. But when you work through the book of Hebrews, you eventually complete Hebrews 5, as we did last week. And you enter Hebrews 6. And what awaits on one hand is really a continuation from Hebrews 5. But it's that coupled with another stern warning from God. Perhaps one of the reasons we tend to define a text as difficult... ...has to do with the severity of the warning that's being issued. Maybe it's difficult because it's addressing something in your life... ...that you're not quite ready to give up yet. Or it could be deemed difficult because of what it's calling you to do. You realize in hearing the warning in the text... ...that it's pointing you to a way of life that makes great demands on you, demands that are high, demands that will cost you greatly, demands that will result in foregoing your current way of operating. Today's text is a difficult text to preach. I was reminded as I'm planning and thinking about it, even yet this morning, the words came to mind. Who is sufficient for these things? That's really my thought this morning as I stand before you. I don't stand before you as one who's arrived. It's been difficult to preach for many preachers over the course of many years. But not only do I believe this text is difficult to preach, I believe it also may be very difficult to hear. That involves you, the listener. Listener. In these last days, the Bible says that some will not endure sound gospel teaching. But, according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Why would they do that? Why would they do such a thing? Perhaps they want teachers to teach them what they want to hear. Not so much concern about what God has already spoken. It goes on and says in 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4, And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Make believe, feel good. Many, for instance, who hear Hebrews 6 bristle when they hear that it is impossible. That word impossible. Verse 4. They hear it's impossible to renew again to repentance one who has fallen away. Those are the words. They immediately take that and associate themselves in the text or someone they know... And they attach a meaning to what it says. Usually thinking the worst case scenario. Gloom and doom. No hope. Lost forever, etc., etc., etc. I think it best to unite the benefits of expository preaching with the challenges of expository preaching this morning. One of the benefits is knowing where we're headed, having a context already established. One of the challenges is unpacking and diving into such a difficult passage, not leaping around it, not trying to jump over it, but preaching through it by the grace of God. Going through Hebrews 6 may be difficult, but I do believe, listen, I do believe it will bear great fruit in the lives of those who have ears to hear what it has to say. One other periphery note. If you came in here this morning thinking that you were going to hear the missing link to unlocking Hebrews 6, you might be disappointed. It's my hope, church, to be faithful to the text. I want you to see not an airtight argument for why I believe my words are the right understanding of this text. Instead, I hope you realize, there's two things here I hope you realize this morning. One, I hope you realize something about God. The God we serve is a God of goodness and severity. Remember those terms in, in Romans eleven twenty two. He's a God of goodness and severity. He's also a God of love and wrath. He's also a God of mercy and judgment. You see, too often we embrace only the attributes of God's goodness. Only the attributes of God's love. Only his attribute of mercy and grace. And we tend to plug our ears when it comes to hearing about God's severity, God's wrath... God's judgment. We don't want to hear that. And yet we must. So I hope you on one hand realize something about God. But on the other hand I hope you realize something about yourself this morning. You have a body that is susceptible still to sin. As long as we have this earth tent, We're susceptible to it. Don't get me wrong it's been paid for it's been accomplished been done by what Christ did at the cross on account for your sin But because we have these earth intents still we are susceptible The Bible says that your heart is deceitful above all things You've got a deceitful heart And yet God has given you the ability to make decisions. Think about this. He's given you the ability to make decisions. He has wired you with a brain that you might be inclined to think. Some of you don't like to think. Don't want to think. In fact, we live among a generation who doesn't really care to think about much of anything besides sitting in front of a screen. It's their way of escape. Their mode of not having to think. We live in an entertainment world. I like this. It's much more difficult to actually engage our brain and think and make decisions. You see, when presented with his truths you have at your disposal an opportunity to receive those truths. He makes himself known that you might receive him as God. That you might receive Jesus as the Son of God. It's his intention that all men would put their trust in Jesus, faithfully living out their days, applying their hearts, as the proverb writer says, applying their hearts to his instruction... And daily renewing their minds from the fountain of God's truth. The text for today in Hebrews 6 is a warning. It's a warning that is issued to fence straddlers in the faith, if you will. A fence straddler. You know what a fence straddler is, right? If we were to take one of these lines on the court and straddle it. You know, we're on both sides of it. And we think about what it is to be a follower of Jesus. What is it to be a believer in Jesus? This is not word speak. It means something. You know, the image I gave earlier in the prayer... ...but the two hands to the plow and not looking back. When we talk about following Jesus... ...straddling the fence... ...is not what that picture looks like from Scripture. Straddling the fence and and taking one side of the fence... ...being the ways of the world... ...and the other side being the ways of the Lord... One side being disobedience, the other being obedience. One being a love for Jesus, the other being a love for the world. And, and you have straddlers. And I believe the Bible would call us to stop straddling the fence. And I believe, in part, that's one of the warnings issued the exhortation. There's going to be three parts to this passage. I believe that's one of them. I believe what's here in the text is applicable to you, whether you are a fence straddler trying to please God and still hold on to this love for things of the world, whether you are a hard-hearted believer who wants nothing to do with God, nothing to do with His Word, or whether you are a believer who knows what it is to walk and talk with Jesus, communing, as the hymn says, as friend, friend. The context of the book of Hebrews tells us that many of the first century listeners were counting the cost of Christianity at this time, at the time it was written. Having grown accustomed to Judaism and the Old Testament Levitical sacrificial system given by God himself, these listeners were well acquainted with the law and with the old covenant way of operating. And coupled with that, the letter is written in the midst of external persecutions as well. On the timeline of history we see Rome, Nero, the emperor, in the beginning stages of persecuting who? Christians. Persecuting Christians for their faith. So what a time to be talking about Jesus right in the midst of the fires of persecution. Are you going to believe and receive Jesus and follow him Are you going to bring that other foot? Are you going to be allowed to bring that other foot? Are you going to come and walk in obedience to the things of Jesus Christ? It's easy to be a straddler in the midst of the context that we're dealing with in Hebrews. And and I, I hope you can see why it would have been easy for them to be a straddler in that context. What a hard situation. What a difficulty. To know what is going on around them. That lives are actually being lost. Because someone says and is living for Jesus. That's what's going on. So with pressures mounting on the outside from Rome. And pressures from the Judaism crowd. Holding forth that which was comfortable. That which they knew. The listeners now find themselves confronted with decisions regarding their faith. Friends decisions that some of you are still having to deal with today. Are you going to hold on to your Judaism roots and miss out on the, on the riches? I think of Ephesians 1, the storehouse of riches, and miss out on God's riches available to you through Jesus Christ. Are you going to content yourselves with Old Testament practices, even though the New Testament offers you life everlasting through Jesus? Are you going to revert to default mode or safety mode? Are you going to stay within the confines of your comfort zone? Or are you going to break free from your old patterns and begin walking in the newness of life that's offered to you through this Messiah named Jesus, who happens to be the Son of God? These are some questions they were dealing with. Hebrews 6, 1 through 8 is God's stern warning to those who are entertaining the thought of departing from the living God. God's stern warning to those who are entertaining the thought of departing from the living God. That that phrase, departing from the living God, might sound familiar, and if so, it's because it is familiar. And it comes from Hebrews 3, verse 12, which says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. I believe the warning that's set forth here is a stern warning to those who are entertaining the thought of departing. As I spoke last week, I do believe this portion of Hebrews is addressing an unbeliever primarily. Okay, I mentioned that last week. Reiterate that for this week. And yet, in saying that, I still believe it no doubt has implications for the believer to take heed to. To pay close attention to what's being spoken here. You know, throughout we've encountered warnings. This is not the first warning that we've come across in Hebrews. The first warning, it was in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we, what? Drift away. Lest we drift away. So there's a potential to drift. Hebrews 3, 7-14. through 14. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Brethren, beware, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. For we have become and now are partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So there's the possibility of drift. There's the possibility of Hardening. And these are warnings that are being issued. A third warning is right at the beginning there of chapter 4. Remember, he says that there were both two groups that were privy to hearing the word, the gospel preached. And those in the Exodus generation who did not enter because of unbelief. It says they heard the word, but it didn't profit them. Why? Because it wasn't mixed with faith. ...wasn't mixed with faith. It didn't profit them. There's a sense in which the word was really... ...somewhat meaningless to them... ...because it, didn't, it wasn't mixed with faith. There wasn't belief. That's, what's, that's what he's talking about at the end of chapter 3... ...the idea of mixing faith... ...believing in this word that they're hearing. And you arrive at chapter 6... ...and verse 4 begins the warning... ...it's impossible the core of the phrase is it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's the core of the phrase. And the contributing passage that works right alongside that warning is in chapter 5, verse 11, which talks about how some have been dull of hearing. You know, the issue throughout Hebrews, and this this is why context is so important, church. The issue throughout Hebrews up to this point has been an inability to hear. An inability to hear. Man's inability to hear. A desire not to hear. Don't want to hear it. They've heard it, but they don't want to really hear it and embrace it. God has endeavored to show himself and in his long suffering today, he's still showing himself. He's still revealing himself that others might come to know him and have everlasting life. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3, he says, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the father. They may know you and his son, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This is eternal life, that they might know you. That's why God sent his son. And when he sent his son, he was essentially declaring to the world, this is who I am. The son came to the earth for a limited period of time. And in his living, he declared exactly the exact representation, Hebrew writer says. He was the very image icon of God himself. So you wanted to know who God was. You want to know what God was like. All you needed to do was look to the son And you'd be able to figure that out. That's the way God planned it. He designed it. It was part of his redemptive plan. That people would be able to see. That people would come to know. As John's gospel says, that people would come to believe that this Jesus is the son of God. Think about the need for warning in your own life this morning. Oftentimes it comes as a result of something in your life that needs to be corrected. Now, I know even as I stand and speak what I just did, there's not a one of us in here that like to be corrected. None of us like to be corrected. We all tend to think we're a lot better than what we really are, truth be told. We don't like correction. And yet the Bible has been given to us one of the benefits of Scripture is that it's profitable for correction. It's profitable for rebuke and pointing out what we're doing wrong. But praise God, that's not the only thing that is profitable for. It's profitable for correcting us, showing us the right path. If we'll have ears to hear. And perhaps that's part of the problem, isn't it? We either don't have ears to hear or we just simply don't want to hear. What we know deep down is really true. It's a heart problem. The warnings in this book of Hebrews are submitted because the lives of the listeners were heading in a wrong direction. Warnings are given because the current conditions warrant a word of correction. Did you hear that? Warnings are given because the current conditions warrant a word of correction. You know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking about it in context of, of my life. And, and I think of, you know, a game of basketball as an official. From time to time I issue warnings. To a coach or to a player. Why would I issue a warning? The conditions that I'm seeing are heading in a wrong direction. A player who wants to referee instead of play. He needs a warning to understand his proper role in the contest that he's participating in. He's the player, I'm the referee. A a warning may be needed if the conditions in the game warrant a word of correction. My point is this, while the warning in Hebrews 6 is strong, it's much needed. And, And listen, you don't issue warnings without there being a reason for doing so. Okay. You don't hear of a tornado warning or a thunderstorm warning just because they feel like interrupting the program. A tornado warning or a thunderstorm warning is, is saying that conditions exist and perhaps some have been sighted around you. Take heed. Now some in this church were on the verge of Drifting. ...neglecting so great a salvation... ...hardening their hearts like those of the Exodus generation. Some heard but had yet to mix the gospel truth with faith. Some were on the dull hearing side... ...sluggish. And some were now being told in Hebrews 6... ...that it is impossible to be renewed to repentance in light of where you're heading. The implication is that the listeners' current conditions called for a series of warnings... From the writer of Hebrews, the trajectory of where things were headed was not good. Some were treading in dangerous territory and needed to be given the warning. Some of you here this morning may be treading in dangerous territory as well. I don't want to think for a moment in a group this size that there still might not be pockets of folks treading in some dangerous water this morning. Something that you're doing, and I don't even have to define it. You know what it is even as I'm speaking. Something you're doing, actions you're taking, behavior, ways that you're thinking, habits that are harmful. You're treading in dangerous territory. You keep doing and operating what, the way that you're operating and see where that trajectory takes you. That's the whole point of the warning. It's his desire. It's God's desire as he's allowed the writer to to write these words of warning. It's God's desire that you wouldn't get to that point, but that you would hear the warning, heed the warning, course correction, get off the fence. Some of you aren't even on the fence. Some of you are still over here loving the ways of the world. Some of you haven't drawn near, ha- haven't, haven't even moved in that direction yet. You know, there's a work of the Holy Spirit, a work of the Holy Spirit that prepares us to come and to cross over from death to life. You see, the Holy Spirit, one of His roles that maybe we discount is that He convicts the world of sin. If you break this text down, it's three parts. I was going to have a fourth part. I knew time was going to be an issue, so we'll we'll pick up the fourth part next week. The fourth part's in verse 9. We might make it the first point for next week since it's the beginning of the message next week. Verses 1, 2, and 3. It's the exhortation. Here's what you need to do. Verses 4, 5, and 6. The warning. Take heed. Verses 7 and 8. Is the warning illustrated? We have an illustration. We have a picture. We have a parable. There's a lot of different terms you might attach to it. A way of helping us understand what the warning is talking about. You know, this exhortation... ...that's given here in the text... ...in 1, 2, and 3. We covered the first part of verse 1 last week. He's essentially saying this exhortation... ...hey look... ...you, you, you can't be carried along to maturity... ...to perfection. Maturity. Remember he's talking about mature and immature last week. Growing. Feeding on milk. Milk only dieters and solid food folks. Remember we talked about that last week. He's carrying that over here. He's saying it's... ...you can't be carried along... ...to maturity while you're still straddling the fence. While you're still holding on to things over here. What are the things over here in light of his audience? The Old Testament principles. The Old Testament practices. The Levitical way of doing things. The First Testament ideas. The text says leaving. Let us be carried along to maturity. Maturity and immaturity no doubt can be used... To describe one who is a babe in Christ. Those words can definitely be used as it speaks to someone who is in Christ. Paul uses that in Corinthians chapter 3 verse 1. A babe in Christ. But I believe the Hebrew writer is using the terms here to describe one who is a believer versus one who is not a believer. It is true that one who is not a believer would be immature as we think about things of the Lord. You can't be carried along to maturity. You can't be a believer when you haven't abandoned your ties with immaturity, the old ways of doing things. I think of first thing that comes to mind is the passage in First John. How can one love the Father and yet still have a love for the world? How? He's, he's, it's not possible. It Can't happen. You have to break ties. Abandon is the idea of the word. Well, the leaving there in verse 1... ...is coupled with the phrase at the end of verse 1... ...not laying again the foundation. Not laying again. What What follows are six arenas that need to go... ...in terms of Old Testament understanding. These are things that need to go. Now understand... ...I want you to notice that these six teachings... In each one of them, there is an Old Testament understanding and there's a New Testament understanding in Christ. And in each case, I want you to notice how the New Testament understanding is so much better. And isn't that a theme of Hebrews? Isn't that, again, one of the benefits of working through verse by verse in a book of Scripture? Because if we hadn't covered the first five chapters of Hebrews, better might not mean a whole lot to you this morning. But I'm hoping... Better does mean something because it's been a big theme. We're talking about being anchored to someone better. The exhortation is to leave these things. To not lay again these Old Testament foundations. Not because, listen, not because they weren't good or not because they weren't helpful. But because God has provided better things. He's provided something better. Things that are intended to accompany one's salvation. That's Hebrews 6 verse 9. We'll get to that next week. Do not lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Of faith toward God. Let's go through the list. Of the doctrine of baptisms. Of laying on of hands. Of resurrection of the dead. And of eternal judgment. There's the list. Really begins in somewhat of an orderly way. Repent. Repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works. You think about these, these whole ideas of, of what used to be. It's simply, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, repentance was talked about, but essentially a turning from evil. Repentance from evil. Repent. Well, it was good, but friends, it was incomplete. And repentance is always incomplete apart from... And unless there is included in that repentance, an understanding of the other side. We talk about repentance, we talk about faith. Right? Repentance, faith, repentance to be sorry for my sin. Repentance is connected to my sin. But if, if there's no understanding and there's no connection with the one who took care of my sin, and that is Jesus, it's it's missing something to make it complete. And so he's talking about faith toward God and on the surface it sounds, that sounds right, that sounds good. He's talking about not laying again this foundation of faith toward God. But we need to understand, for those folks living in the Old Testament, faith toward God, that was the way that it had been done. And yet in the Old Testament, in the Law and the Prophets, was it not also in that point talking about and pointing toward the one who was going to come? And that was Jesus. So Not laying again the foundation of faith toward God, but understanding in the New Testament the faith that we exhibit is a faith toward God in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, it's good what's being talked about over here in the Old Testament. Remember, Romans chapter 7, Paul says that he's asking some rhetorical questions. And one of the things that he gets to is he's talking about the law. So do we just ship the law out and say the law is worthless? No, he says the law is good. The law is holy. The law served a purpose for a time until, what? Until the seed, capital S, was going to come. It served a purpose. It served the purpose of like a tutor. It helped us along for the purpose of bringing us to the one who was able, the one who alone would be able to cleanse us from sin. Jesus. So don't lay again, he says, this foundation of repentance from dead works. Don't lay again this foundation of faith toward God. Understand there's something greater here. He keeps moving on. Don't don't lay again the foundation of the doctrine of baptisms. This is interesting. If we have more time, I'd dive a little further into this. But most of us, when we think of baptisms, we think of water, and we think of going down and being immersed and coming back up. Most of us, right? Think of that. But in the Old Testament way of thinking through baptisms and the word itself, some of your translations might have cleansings or washings. And it's true that in every Jewish home there was this this basin that the family would, would wash themselves. They had rituals that included cleansing themselves. And yet we see that there's something in the Old Testament ...that is over here in the New Testament... ...when we think about being baptized... ...and what being baptized in water represents. Yeah, it's a cleansing... ...but it's a representation... ...that I am uniting myself with Christ. It's signifying the fact that that I am dying with Christ... ...just as Christ died at the cross... ...going under the water... ...then is the burial... ...and coming up out of the water... ...is the resurrection... You see, the New Testament idea and understanding of being baptized has much greater implications than what they were holding on to in the Old Testament. Not laying again the foundations of baptisms or washings and cleansings. But he says also, don't lay again the foundation of laying on of hands. Now again, laying on of hands, our minds probably immediately go to New Testament ideas, New Testament concept. Laying on of hands, something that happened to Paul and Barnabas before they were commissioned by the Holy Spirit in Acts 13 to go in ministry, right? Laying on of hands is something we do to uh, you hear uh, ordaining uh, people to ministry. Um, laying on of hands in the Book of Acts is also seen; the Holy Spirit would come. Remember when the apostles would come and they lay hands in the Holy Spirit. Those are the images that typically come to mind. We typically don't think of the images that are Old Testament. The Old Testament laying on of hands would have been Leviticus chapter 1, Leviticus chapter 3, whereby the people would bring an animal to the priest and they were instructed, this was the way that it worked, they would lay their hands on the animal that was about to be sacrificed for their sin. Friends, the New Testament idea and way, we don't lay our hands on him, but he has laid hold of us. Has he not? And we're to press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of us. There's the old, there's the new. There's not laying again the foundation of resurrection. And there's not a whole lot in the Old Testament. Job 19.26 gives a reference or speaks to a little bit of resurrection. But can we not say that over here on the New Testament end of things... That our New Testament understanding of resurrection is absolutely huge. Because without resurrection, our faith is futile, Paul says. If he's not been raised, we're still in our sins. You see, there's a New Testament understanding of resurrection. That people over here on the other side have, they've missed this. They've missed out on this. Just as they've missed out on the eternal judgment piece that they're not to lay again. Eternal judgment. We see a glimpse of it in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 is a verse near the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And and yet we see in the New Testament loads of material, loads of passages that speak to God's judgment. I want you to see that these things that they're called to leave and abandon over here, they're called to leave those things not because they weren't good. Not because they were uh, evil or bad or wicked. No, they were good. These things of the law, things that God had given to Moses to put down. He had instructed Aaron to lead as high priest. These were all good things given by God. But they, by themselves, were insufficient. Over here in Christ. The warning is being sounded. First there's the exhortation to drop, to abandon, to leave so that you might go on to maturity, so that you might come to know this Jesus. And this, verse 3, this we will do if God permits. This we will do if God permits. If He allows is another word there. You might remember the story where the pigs were sent down the hill. Remember, they went to the... The demons, the evil spirits, they begged permission. Jesus permitted. He gave them allowance to go into the swine. Same idea, same word. Now this idea in verse 3, it rightly acknowledges the sovereign power and authority of God over all things in all situations. And it also speaks to the divine power needed to both leave... Or abandon the old ways of living and to be carried along to maturity. His enabling power is needed on both ends. Okay? That's that's one of the ideas here of this. Now, verse 3 begs a question. Why wouldn't God allow someone to abandon their ties with an old way of living that they might see and walk in the new way that he's made available? Why wouldn't he allow? Why wouldn't he permit? Good question. First of all, we always need to remember that he's God and we're not. Amen? Romans says pretty much something similar to that, that he's the potter, we're the clay. He's the creator, we're the creation. We have no right to sit in as as judge on what God is doing and what he chooses to do and how he goes about his work. It's our job to submit to him. It's our job to obey his commandments. And second, the question from 6.3 of Hebrews is a great segue into the warning that comes in verses 4, 5, and 6. The warning brings to light, I believe, the question from verse 3 that arises. Why wouldn't God allow this break to occur in the lives of people? Why wouldn't he allow it? After all, isn't God the one who is long-suffering toward us? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Is it possible that God permits exactly what man has an appetite for? Is it possible that God allows the desire of man's heart to run its course? Have you read Romans 1, 18 to 32 lately? God gives man over to certain things. I've always always envisioned Romans 1, 18 to 32, sort of like this downward spiral. It's pretty bad. If you haven't read it of late, I encourage you to read it. The warning is submitted in verses 4 through 6. Look at it with me. For it is impossible. Now I'm going to read several participle phrases here. But again, remember the, the main thrust of the text. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's the main core of what we're talking about here. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Many of your translations say if they fall away. But I also believe that many of your translations also probably have a little footnote. And I believe the footnote has a better rendering of that phrase. Instead of if, instead of a conditional there. I believe and have fallen away. That it is included in the previous four participle phrases. So there's a list. And the list keeps going even to the beginning of verse 6. And have fallen away. It's impossible then to renew them to repentance. Since... They crucify again for themselves, that's key phrase, the son of God, and put him to an open shame. Verses 4 through 6, I want you to notice are expressed in the third person. O'Brien in his commentary I think handles this very nicely and he he says that the change is significant and I do believe and agree that this change is significant. He's been talking second person at the end of chapter 5. He includes himself uh, first person plural at the beginning of 6 but then in 4 it goes to third person. Why? What's he communicating? What's he saying in the warning? I believe that the author does not explicitly, he says, identify those who have fallen away with the listeners of the Hebrews. Some are apparently in great danger, thus the warning. Do we understand that? Thus the warning. They're in danger. But it is not asserted that they have committed apostasy or fallen away for good. The warning, like the encouragements and promises, is intended to prevent this from happening. And apparently the author believes that his listeners, or at least some of them, can still avoid such disastrous consequences. Otherwise, he says, there would be no point to the warning. We see in verses 4, 5... six, That it is impossible. By the way, impossible for the record. It's used three other times in Hebrews 6.18... ...where it says that it is impossible for God to lie. It's used in Hebrews 10 verse 4... ...where it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And it's used in Hebrews 11 verse 6... ...where it's impossible to please God apart from faith... There are some folks who want to make this word impossible mean something other than what it really means. You know what impossible means? It means impossible. It means it can't be done. Some people want to substitute difficult there. But think about how it would render those other three passages I just shared with you. It's difficult for God to lie. It's difficult for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin? It doesn't fit, does it? No, it's impossible. It's impossible. So in what manner is it impossible? And what do these clauses here in verses 4 and 5 have to do with one not being renewed again to repentance? We think about what this looks like in verse 4. The ones who have been enlightened... The ones who have been enlightened, I think of the passage, the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 where the light arises, right? And this light is shining. But do you know that the light that was shining, it was prophesied and Jesus comes on the scene into the dark world. When Jesus came, one might think because Jesus came and he enlightened the darkness around him that all then received it and all then were saved. Do we know that to be true or not, friends? That wasn't true. In fact, John chapter 1 says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. To those who believe in his name. So let's not think for a moment that simply being enlightened is equivalent to, in fact, these terms that are listed here in, in the warning. These terms that are listed here Don't speak to one being saved at all. There's this being up against and in the context and sharing in these things of the Lord. But you and I both know that you can attend church 52 Sundays in a year and you might be lost as lost can be. Enlightened. What's the second one? Tasted the heavenly gift. What's this heavenly gift? Lots of lots of commentators have have submitted several things the gift of grace, the gift of righteousness. Some have said the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some have said, no, it's not the Holy Spirit, because he talks about the Holy Spirit here in just a moment. Tend to believe that this heavenly gift is the gift of Christ Himself. They've tasted the heavenly gift. And we have to ask the question here, in what manner have they tasted the heavenly gift? Think about the context. Have they tasted in terms of fulfilled themselves in this? I don't think so in light of the context. See, here's where it's it's difficult as we come to a passage like this because we we can make an assumption just like when I put forward impossible. What's impossible mean in Hebrews? Well, we see it three other times. All three times it's used as in, nope, can't happen. Not a possibility. But we take the word taste, and we go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. And we see that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Let me ask you a question. Did he taste death for everyone in the sense that he just nibbled on it? No. He experienced the fullness of death for everyone. That's the idea in Hebrews 2, 9. One of the challenges in understanding and interpreting... ...is to also see that while we look at all these other verses and and where that word is used... ...we also come to understand that it doesn't necessarily always equate to... ...therefore it must be used this way all the time. And here's one of those examples with tasting. In fact, he uses tasting a few times here in this warning, doesn't he? Tasting the heavenly gift. Tasting the heavenly gift. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened... ...have tasted the heavenly gift... You know, there are some folks coupled with this heavenly gift. If we, if we do take this as the gift of Christ, the life that he gives to us in Christ, they've tasted it. In fact, it's a, in a very real sense, those who are in Christ, we began by tasting, didn't we? See, the point is that we don't taste. That's not the point. The point is that we don't remain a taster, a, a nibbler. That we move, that we grow. We've been talking about this. That we move on to maturity. There are some folks, and I believe this is part of the warning. There are some folks who have been happy and content and satisfied just being in the vicinity of tasting the goodness of Christ. What else? They've been, become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've become sharers of the Holy Spirit. The word partaker there has in mind one one of association. Not participation, but association. Associated with the Holy Spirit. Think about it this way. If we're talking about a believer here, the wording wouldn't make a whole lot of sense because nowhere in the scripture do we see that the Holy Spirit associated with the believer that, that we are associating with him. No, the Holy Spirit abides in us. We don't associate with him. He's in us. He abides in us forever. Keep in mind, context. These folks are periphery folks. These folks are either straddling the fence, like it both ways. They haven't made that decision yet to turn and accept and receive this truth of Christ, the Messiah. Or they're all the the way over here and they're hard-hearted toward it. And yet they're in the context. And yet they're hearing Perhaps it's one of the reasons why time and time and time again he keeps coming back to these folks being dull of hearing. They've heard it. And yet they remain over here. What else? If tasted, there's the word again, verse 5, tasted the good word of God. Tasted the good word, go back to our example. Go back to our example of, of coming to church every Sunday of the year. You can come every Sunday and you can hear the word you can sit in the chair, young people, you can sit in the chair and you can hear God's word. Don't think for a moment that just being in an a and hearing the word of God, nibbling on little bits and pieces here and there is sufficient for your salvation. This is a warning. You've tasted not only the good word of God, But you tasted the powers of the age to come. Powers of the age to come speaks of the future kingdom. Reminds me of Hebrews two, which talks about in verse four. He said, Hey, don't neglect this great salvation. And God also bearing witness with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will, pointing to the age to come. You've been a part of that. He's saying, You've seen these things. You've been in the presence of God at work. Warning. This is all in the, in the midst of the warning. Remember, He said, It's impossible for those who were enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word, have tasted the powers of the age to come, and have fallen away, fallen away in general. A general idea and understanding of fallen away has in mind to sin or to go astray. But again, in the context, really speaks to and has in mind one who has put a stake in the sand, so to speak has made the decision on their own because remember what we said about earlier, God's allowed us to make decisions. We sometimes think about, we want to think about God's sovereignty and we fail to remember that He's given to us a will. He's given to us the ability to think and to make decisions. And it's another time and place to talk about where that fits in with His sovereignty, but I just want you to know that both can be true. What is interesting is you look at this. If they fall away... ...is is how it's rendered in the New King James. But really the better rendering is, is... ...tacking on that participle to what's come previous... ...and say, and have fallen away. It's impossible then to renew them... ...or restore them again to repentance. How is it impossible? Why is it impossible? The next phrase gives us two reasons. They're causal participles. They're going to give us an explanation for why it's impossible. How it is so. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. That's the first reason. Listen, Jesus, and Hebrew writers already talked about this. Jesus died on the cross once. He's going to talk about this again a little bit later in Hebrews. Once for all. One sacrifice for sin. The thought of a Jewish person who understood, who, who had crossed over, who uh, was a believer and who understood, you know, the writer. Let's just take the writer of Hebrews for just a moment as he's moved by the Spirit. To consider being, Christ being crucified again. What that would have been for him, to think and consider that. And yet these people who had been given, by the way, all of these things that are written in the warning, verses 4, 5, and 6, all those four or five things we just worked through, All of those things, every single one of them, they they are advantages or benefits of God's blessings. God has given to people himself for them to recognize, to notice, to embrace, and to come and receive. He has not been hiding out in a corner. In other words, God's made himself available. He's made himself known. He has manifested himself to the world. fact he loved the world so much that he gave his son that's how much he loved the world he gave his son so we keep looking they crucify again for themselves the son of god we think here this idea of crucifying again and then putting him to an open shame. The word has, has in mind this, this idea of public punishments that, that made an example. We think about the crucifixion and how they would put them and hang them in areas where people could see so that they would be brought to shame and so that the people would get the message in fear. That was the idea. It's impossible to renew these folks again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. These people, listen, here's here's where where it comes to, to the table here. We think about how it's impossible. How is it so? I want you to think about this. In the church, many of our families here, children in particular, you've grown up in homes that have endeavored to teach you the things of God. You spend time of family worship perhaps in your house. You spend time, parents, teaching and training your children in the way that they ought to go in the things of the Lord. You spend time singing songs and hymns in your home. Children, you've been brought up to know and to see the things of God. And I want you to think about this. Just as the audience in Hebrews has been given the fullness, the the complete package, if you will, of who God is and who this Messiah is, Jesus Christ is. He's shown them everything there is to see. Children, your parents are showing you, Lord willing, showing you and providing for you an atmosphere, an environment in which you will come to see and know all things about God. They're going to endeavor to make it clear so that you don't miss out on any of these truths from the Scripture. They're going to see to it that by the time you graduate, by the time you're out of the home, you're going to have a first-hand faith. It's going to be settled in your own heart who Jesus is. So how can it be impossible then to renew one to repentance? Sounds harsh, doesn't it? Keep in mind, this is a warning. It's a stern warning. Stern warning about the direction. This is where it leads. This is where it's going. If you want to continue straddling the fence. If you want to keep hanging out over here. It's where it's going. He's he's letting everybody know. And it's impossible in the sense that he's given everything there is to know. When you have refused, when you have profaned what God has offered you in Jesus Christ... In that sense, is it not impossible? Impossible. What else is he going to show you? What else is he going to reveal to you that he hasn't already revealed to you? We can take that and we can couple it with some things we know to be true about God. Everyone, whoever, whoever, everyone, those terms... Pretty wide open terms. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. And we already read 2 Peter. God desires that all would come to repentance. See the issue friends is not that we have this God who's just waiting to squash people. And some people think that's who this God is in Hebrews 6. I beg to differ. I don't agree with that. I believe we have an incredibly Compassionate, merciful high priest, Jesus Christ, who willingly laid down his life for us that we might grab a hold of and receive and believe these truths, and that we might walk in obedience to him all of our days, all the way to the end. How can we neglect so great a salvation? impossible in the sense that some have decided to crucify for themselves the Son of God. Some have decided to put Him to an open shame. At least that's the direction they're heading. That's where they're going, thus the warning. We get to the illustration at the end. For is the connector word here. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it. And bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated. Receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Seems like a a pretty uh, vivid picture for us this earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it. And it bears herbs that are useful by whom it's cultivated. By whom, think about it. If we had a picture and you had an opportunity, maybe you've got a picture, you can write this. I believe it's not only an illustration or a parable of sorts, but I believe it's intended and helpful for us to even write it out. The earth you know, the earth which soaks in the rain that comes upon it. I was thinking of what the words of Jesus elsewhere in the scripture. He talks about the rain comes and falls on the just as well as the unjust, doesn't it? The, this rain that comes and the earth drinks it in. The earth drinks it in. And there's some who... There's, there's fruit bearing. There's something that's useful for those by whom it is cultivated... And what's the result? Receives blessing from God. Blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, that's contrasted with the herbs that are useful. Thorns and briars aren't very useful. Think about it this way too. Thorns and briars, you don't have to do a whole lot of cultivating to get thorns and briars, do you? Huh? They just pop up. They just pop up. You don't have to do a thing. They just pop right up. Thorns and briars, weeds. What are they good for? They're not good for much of anything. Rejected. The word rejected means worthless. They have no value. Notice it says they are near to being cursed. They are near to being cursed. They're they're real close. They're, They're in that direction. Again, he submitted a warning and he's trying to help people understand here's where this goes. Whose end is to be burned, and when we're talking about curse, the language of curse in the scripture, this has elements of Deuteronomy in it—the blessings and cursings, doesn't it? Huh? But when we talk about elements of cursing in the scripture, this is not um, a simple uh, burning weeds in order to grow something else on that field. No, this is what it actually looks like. It's 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 burning in terms of destruction, in terms of judgment. That's the element when we think about cursing. I don't believe it's a pretty picture when we see in the scriptures the one who has decided to pay for his own sin, to take care of that on his own, because he is going to have to deal with his own sin. And the place the Bible says that those folks will end up is with the devil in hell. That's the real picture. And we know a picture, we've got a parable Jesus told about what that's going to be like. It's a place of torment. It's a place of everlasting torment. Everlasting separation from God. Friends, you don't have to be there. God isn't making you go there. Can't just be so blunt to say that. He's not making any one of you go there. It's not God's fault. What I see in the scripture in Hebrews 6 and everything leading up to Hebrews 6 is man's inability, his desire to not want these things of God himself. This, this desire of man to put a stake in the sand and say, I'm not doing that. And when man decides he's not going to do that, God is God and he could override any one of us in a moment. But God also allows us, Romans 1, 18 to 32, He also allows us to be okay with what we've decided. He's not going to somehow twist your arm. He's not going to turn you into a robot to make you. That's not the way he operates. Well, I know we're out of time. I know I've shot my time probably. And then some... I do believe that the passage that's before us is speaking to the opportunity for receiving salvation. The opportunity for receiving salvation and not salvation itself that can be lost. Do we see the difference? I really believe that to be true. What's presented here in the warning? He's presenting an opportunity. For receiving. It's the opportunity for receiving salvation, not salvation itself, that can be lost. There's going to come a day. And hey, let's face it. There's not a one of us in here who are guaranteed another day, right? None of us. All of our days have been ordained by God, but there's no one here in these seats that knows when their day is. All the more reason, friends, to take heed to the warning stop straddling the fence or stop hanging out over here in the world completely. God loves the world so much that he gave his son. Don't turn away from the son. Taking the Old Testament image and illustration, you remember the day when Snakes were breaking out and biting people, and people were dying in the camp numbers, book, book numbers, and, and, and the solution was to put a bronze serpent on a pole. Remember that? And what were they supposed to do with it? They are supposed to raise it up. And then what was the instruction? Look to the bronze serpent, and they would be healed. They would live. Isn't it interesting that John, as he, Jesus, as he's speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he brings to the surface that image, in the book of Numbers. Just as Moses had them raise the bronze serpent and had everyone look to that serpent to live, he likens that to how today. We need to cross over and let go of these things in the Old Covenant, these things that we used to do, this old way of living. And if we want to live, Jesus makes it pretty simple. Look to the Son. Look to the Son and live. As for faith... It too is simple. How do I know? Because Jesus took a little child and placed him in front of him. And he said, if you have faith, like that of a child. That was the illustration. Simple faith to trust him. Friends, I want to encourage you just as the word is. Doing that for all of us here today. Heed the warning. Listen to the exhortation. Leave, abandon, cut ties with old ways. The old is gone. The new has come. A new creation lives in a new way. Heed the warning. Remember the picture in verses 7 and 8. Pray that the rain that comes into your life from God is received that as he gives that to you you would receive it that you would drink it in that you would receive his blessing now there's so many other things we could talk about but we're going to finish I hope and pray that there's been some clarity to the passage I hope and pray that you've heard the importance of the exhortation in the text the warning that's put there and why it's there what it's intended for, to get your attention. And that we would walk, not on the fence, straddling, but we would be over here walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. And Lord, I I do thank you that you gave uh, your truths. And Lord, I know and recognize even as I stand here, there there are so many other things swirling that I could have shared Lord, I pray that what was shared was uh, sufficient for this time today. I do thank you, Lord, for this word and I thank you that you've given to us several warnings here in Hebrews. Oh, Father, I pray that we would not drift, we would not uh, neglect this great salvation you've given to us, that we would not harden our hearts, that we would, Father, we would mix the word that you give, that we would mix it with faith. Father, I pray that we would take heed to the trajectory. And even this morning, Lord, I pray that we would all be considering and thinking through our own lives, examining not only whether we're in the faith, but examining where we're at with you, examining our current relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Examining the evidence and the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in us currently. Examining our our patterns over over the long haul and, and whether we've been able to see any kind of growth as a Christian. Asking ourselves, Lord, asking of you to examine us. Lord, it's our heart's desire that we would bear fruit. Pray that it would be so as we walk in obedience to your word. So Father, thank you. I pray your blessing on this church I pray Father that everyone here would take heed to the warning whether an unbeliever or whether a believer I believe there's a message here for both Father it's your word it's your good word intended to instruct us in your way of truth so I pray Lord that we would press in and press onward to this prize that awaits us with Christ in heaven that we would persevere in the meantime all the way to the end. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.